We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 today. As I mentioned, uh, we've been going through this series in our youth group on Wednesday nights of Old Testament characters that, that we call unlikely heroes, ones that, that looked like maybe they might be the rescuer, but were not. And as we've worked through those stories, and, and I've tried to, to condense those stories as much as I could so that we could share them on Wednesday nights with our youth group, um, there's just a number of places in those stories, and I said this a few weeks ago when I talked about David and Mephibosheth, but there's a number of places in those stories where, where I read through it and I see something and I think, oh, this is so good. This is so awesome. I wish I could share that part too. And I'm just not able to do that on Wednesday nights. And so I, I've, I'm, I'm grateful that I can come here and we can, we can open it up and look at it a little bit deeper and spend a little bit more time in it, in those passages. And so I say that today to say, if, if we're reading through this and, and, and you're missing some of the broader details that I'm not able to share in this, you just need to find a junior hire or a senior hire and visit with them after the service because they'll have some of the details that surround this story that I'm not able to get to today. This story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is one of those stories in the Bible where, where it happens thousands of years before Hollywood, thousands of years before, before Shakespeare, but it is exactly a story that you might see on the big screen. It's even shared that way. It's, it's written out that way. When, as we read it today, as we walk through it today, your mind, you will see that story it has a dramatic ending and it has a, has a focal point, a future that we want, to, we want to look at and celebrate in this morning at the very end. This story is made for TV. The story starts at the beginning of chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you're, if you're in a pew Bible this morning, it's page 237. We're going to read it as we walk through it this morning and just kind of break it down. It will also be on the screen so you can follow along there. In chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This, this story begins with, with a, some pretty harsh instructions that Samuel, he's the, he's the prophet of God, who's speaking to Saul, the first king of Israel. And he says, these are the instructions that God has given to you, Saul. These are the instructions. And they stem, they stem these instructions to, to go to Amalek and to, and to do to them what they did to Israel stem from Deuteronomy. So if you want to just turn back a little bit, because I think you need to see this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Moses led the Israelites, as you know, out of Egypt. And as they were, as they were escaping out of Egypt and on the run out of Egypt... The nation of, of Amalek came and attacked them. They won the victory. The Israelites were able to beat down Amalek as they came to, to try to destroy them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're going to be in verse 17. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 17, God says, I'm going to remember this. And he says it here. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the, as, did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way that you were to faint and weary and you were cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that your Lord God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. and You shall not forget. You shall not forget. So these harsh instructions that we first get here, we first have to understand that these instructions are not being given to Saul so that he can enlarge his territory. These instructions are not being given to Saul so that he can build up the treasury of the people of Israel. These instructions, these instructions that Samuel is giving to Saul, that God has given to Samuel, these instructions to devote to these instructions about destruction, to devote to destruction all that they have, these instructions are coming from God. This command makes us a little bit queasy. We hear this, we read this. Do not spare them. Kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And we kind of squirm. A little bit. Devote everything to destruction? We don't like that. We don't like it so much that as I studied this week, and I would look at this passage in different commentaries and different study books, there would be pages and pages and pages of explanation about divine warfare. Why it would be okay for God to declare this. Why it's okay in some instances throughout all the Old Testament for God to send people in. This is not the first time that something like this has happened. God already has done massive de- destruction, especially over people. We saw it at the very beginning in Genesis. Noah and the flood was an example much like this. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed. Joshua was given instructions when, when he took over and, and led the people into the promised land in that very, first, that very first battle that he had in Jericho, that they were to destroy everything. And in fact, when, when one of the Israelites keeps back a little bit, that they end, up, they end up having issues as they move forward because they did not obey the instructions that God had given to them. I can't today give you a great rationale and explanation in all of this. There's some unknown and there's some mystery in it. But I can tell you today that we know that God is a righteous judge. We know that God is holy. And we know that we are not. The truth is, we too often, too quickly belittle our sin. We make it seem like it's really not that big a deal. That it doesn't deserve the punishment that scripture tells us it deserves. It is an affront to a perfect and holy and just God. We take grace for granted. We know that sometime in the future there is going to be a complete and a total judgment. And we're okay with that as long as there's a second chance. 
And we don't see a second chance as we read these instructions from Samuel to Saul. There has to be a way. There has to be a hope. Here's the truth of the story. We are in the second chance. Adam and Eve, they were the first chance. And everyone from that point is in that second opportunity. We are in the grace moment right now. We don't like it. We read these instructions and we can't understand it. But we trust that God is good and only good and only does what is good. So we pick up the story in verse 4. Saul summons the people, numbers them, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul comes to the city of, of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul to the Kenites says, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The instructions that Samuel gave to Saul seemed pretty clear. Devote to destruction everything. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. All of it was to be destroyed. All of it was to be taken care of. And so Saul gathers his people. He charges in. He wins the battle. And then it says in verse 9, but they spare Agag, the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the fatted calves, the best of the lambs, all that was good. They would not utterly destroy that. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The things that were despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The picture I had in my mind this week, and I, maybe this won't make sense to everyone, but there, there are moments when it comes time at my house for me to clean out our garage. And there's a whole collection of things in there. There's a lot of things that, that, that I've saved over time, and, and, and it's time to clean out and throw everything out, and you begin to look around and, and you say, well, there's, there's this bicycle tube. It just has one leak in it. I, I know I can patch it and save it, but if I have to throw something out, I, I guess I can throw that out. And there's this... this shovel over here the handle's broken but you know someday in the future I could put a new handle in it and it would be okay but it probably could go and there's this other tool that you know if you hold it just right you can make it work I, I replaced it I have another one already that I use instead but that one might be useful someday you see the picture that's the picture I have of them heading in they they they, they know the instructions we're supposed to destroy everything but then when they get there they start to see things and, and and they say well this is this is too good to throw out and that's too good to throw out and this is too good to kill and we're going to save that and pretty soon the list of things that they can get rid of look like broken shovels and tools that don't work anymore and inner tubes that have holes in them those are the only things that make the cut the despised and worthless things they have this huge group of things that they have kept 
They've kept the king. They've kept the sheep. They've kept the oxen. They've kept the fattened calves. They've kept the lambs. They've kept everything that was good, it says. They would not utterly destroy that. Right away here, at the beginning of the story, Samuel's instructions to Saul are clear. And yet, Sam, Sam, and yet Saul completely disregards them as he heads in. We continue on in the story. He brought, oh, I'm in the wrong passage there. Now in verse 10, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. If we have questions about divine warfare in the beginning of the chapter, we probably have real questions here about what does it mean to have godly, divine regret? How, how can it be that God can regret something here in verse 11? Or later in verse 35, at the end of the chapter, God says that he regrets again that Saul has become king. How is it that God can regret something? Verses 11 and 35 say God does regret. Verse 29, if we'll get there in just a little bit, but in verse 29 it says that God does not, God does not regret, at least not like man does. So which one is it? Here we have three verses in this same chapter. Two of them that say God does regret. One of them that says that God does not regret, at least not like man does. So we have to understand, what does it mean when, when, when God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret. How is it that God can have regret? I think the best way to understand that is to try, as, as he does in verse 29, to try to compare it to man's regrets. There are a lot of times that you and I have regrets where we look back on a decision that was made and we, we had ignorance. We didn't know what was to come. We couldn't see the future. And now that we've seen it, now that we've gotten farther down the road, we look back and we say, I regret that decision that I made back there. Or we made a decision and then we didn't have complete control over it and so it spun out of control and it got away from us and we say, we regret that that happened. But those things can't be true for God. God does not make a decision and then look and then, and then get to the future and say, I didn't realize that this was going to happen. I didn't have control of all the circumstances that happened. And now that we get there, things are different than what I thought they would be. And so I have regret. That can't be the kind of regret that God has. We don't always have all the data. And our decisions sometimes are regrettable. But God always has all of the data. In fact, if he didn't have the data, there's a, there's a whole idea about that. It's, it's called open theism, that God, God, just like us, does not know the future. God is in control of things, but there's some things that he leaves up to man, and he himself even doesn't know what's going to happen. That's not what we're talking about here. 
God is never surprised. He knows all things. He knew the beginning from the end. At the very beginning, he knew it all, all the way through. He is never surprised. He is never caught off guard. So how can God have regret? What I've read this week, what I, what I believe as well as I look at it, is that God has regrets, and his regrets are based on the expression of his emotion or of his attitude. And this is the, this is the idea, that because of Saul's choices, Saul, he, he knew what Saul was going to choose when he made Saul king, but his emotion now is different than his emotion was at that point. Now that Saul has made those choices, even though he knew Saul would make them in the future, now that Saul has made those, rechoice, those, those decisions and those choices, the emotion, the expression of God's countenance has changed. He now has regret. So I don't know if that makes sense totally in how God might have regret, but it's, it's that his, his emotion and expression changes, not that he wishes he would have made a different decision. He says, I regret that I made Saul king. He's turned back from following me and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel's angry and cries out to the Lord all night. We pick up the story in verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up for a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel then comes to Saul and Saul says to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of God. And Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. The response of Saul in here, Samuel prays all night. He's upset. He, he, he gets up early. He knows he's heading to see Saul. He knows there's going to be this confrontation and as he goes, he even begins, it, it begins to build up even more. God has said to, to Samuel, here's what, here's what Saul did. He went, he didn't devote everything to destruction, like I said. He kept all these things. Samuel gets up in the morning, heads out, and, and the first thing he hears is that Saul has built an idol of himself. A triumphant trophy, declaring how great King Saul is. And then he finally gets to Saul in verse 13. And Saul immediately says to Samuel, Blessed be you to the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He comes to Samuel and says, I have done exactly what God told me to do. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's ludicrous that this would be, Samuel, that this would be Saul's response to Samuel. The evidence of Saul's disobedience is literally all around him. And he says to Samuel, I've done everything that God has called me to do. And Samuel looks at him and says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the oxen I hear? He stands there and he looks at Saul and he says, 
I see them. I hear them. I can smell the livestock as I stand here to talk to you. I know what you have done, Saul. I know what you've done. Your sin has betrayed you. There's evidence of your disobedience all around. It's all over. Do you not see it? It's the picture of the, of the toddler that reaches into the cookie jar and eats the cookie and it's all over his face and mom says, did you eat a cookie? No, not me. And it's there. It's unavoidable. You can't miss it. What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul has one more moment here. He has one more moment to say, you're right. I did it wrong. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. He has one more moment to confess his sin. He has one more moment. God has given him one more moment of grace here to say, take this opportunity. Do what's right. And Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord our God. And the rest we devoted to destruction. Saul does exactly, he does exactly in this moment what all of us do, what had been done for hundreds of years before him and in fact had been done by the very first two people to ever sin. He shifts the blame. It's the classic response. He says, first, they brought them down from the Amalekites. He says, they were the ones that did it. I, I really didn't have anything to do with it. It was the people who saw it and thought that they should bring it. Instead, they were the ones that did it. The people spared them. And then, and then second, he even blame shifts a little bit more. First, he, he blames it on the people who did it. I, I didn't do it, but they did it. And, and, then he, and then he even blames it a little bit on God. He says, they did it for you, God. It's because of your, your greatness that we want to sacrifice to you. It's, it's not about me. I, I didn't do anything wrong, Saul says. The people did it, and we did it because of you. We did it for you. And Samuel stops him right in the middle. And he says, stop. Stop. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me tonight. And so Saul says, speak. We pick it up in verse 17. Samuel says, Though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He says, remember you, you're little in your own eyes, but now you're the head of the tribes of Israel. Samuel says, remember when, when you were chosen as the first king of the Israelites? You came from this tiny little tribe, the Benjamites. You came from the smallest of families. You were shy and humble. You stepped back in the crowd. You didn't want anyone to see you. You were small in your own eyes. And Samuel says, that was then. This is now. You're the leader. You're the king. You're the one who's in charge. You are the head over all of the tribes of Israel. God anointed you as the king of Israel. 
And he sent you on a mission. He said, go, devote everything to destruction. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? Isn't that a good picture? It pounced on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Samuel, from the very beginning, even when Saul was first anointed king, he was opposed to the idea. He, said, he even said to all the Israelites, you don't want a king. You don't want to take a king. They're, they're going to take your sons. He's going to make an army. He's going to tax you. You don't want to have a king. You have a king. It's God. And God said to Samuel, let them have their king. God was saying to Samuel and saying to us, I'm going to prepare, I'm going to prepare them through this kingship, through Saul and through David and through Solomon and then through all of the kings of the split kingdom. I'm preparing them so that they will know what a good king is. They will know who the perfect king is. They will know of the king that is to come. The kingship of Israel and Judah, for the most part, was a failed experiment all the way through. There's brief pictures where some of them begin to follow after God or start to and fade away or come back to it. But for the most part, they continue down the path, leading people astray, leading the Israelites away. Samuel says, why did you not obey? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul gives another response in verse 20. He says, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, the king, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, they took the spoil, they took the sheep, they took the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel replies, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen, better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And then Samuel says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel once again, Saul once again has an opportunity. And once again digs in. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission. I did what I was supposed to do. I did bring Agag, the king, back, but I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And again, shifts it to the people. They, they did this. They brought these back. Even Saul's saving of Agag was really not an act of mercy. The tradition at this time was that kings would, would go and they would capture other kings and they would use that as a boost in status. They would take those kings and they would throw them in their dungeons and they would begin to wither away in there and every once in a while they would give them a little bit of food and then when they wanted to boost their status, when they wanted to declare their greatness, they would bring those kings out from the prisons, from the dungeons, they would shackle them up and they would march them through town. And they would do that so that people would see that King Saul 
is the king of kings. He has other kings who are beneath him, who are a part of his kingdom but are thrown in jail. He is the king of all of these kings that are marched down the street. He uses it as a status boost. And even the people who who pounce on the spoil, even they know it's it's it, it, pouncing on the spoil or or taking the the animals for sacrifice, even that's a bit of a ruse because the people know that if they bring the animal, they bring the meat to be sacrificed, not all of the meat will be consumed, but some of the meat of the sacrifice will be used for them to eat. Those families can eat some of the meat from those sacrifices. And Samuel, or Saul says to Samuel, I brought him back. I did what I was supposed to do. The people took the spoil. They took the sheep. They, they did it, but they did it so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord your God. And Samuel says, God has great delight in burnt offerings. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Obedience, he says. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God hates disobedience, but he delights in obedience. He delights in following his commands, in your following his commands. To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. And then he says, in verse 23, your rebellion, you're wanting your own way, you're doing it on your own. It's the same it's the same as the sin of divination. It's the same as, as devil worship. That's basically what he's saying. That you're following in the footsteps of Satan, which is exactly right. Satan, who demanded autonomy from God, wanted his own way, declared his own greatness. It's exactly what Saul has done. So Samuel says, you have rejected him, and now he rejects you. You will no longer be the king of Israel. Saul says to Samuel in verse 23, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Again, this looks like a pretty contrite response from Saul. You're right. You're right. I didn't obey the command in the way that I was supposed to. And then he quickly says to Samuel, now pardon me and then come with me so that I can bow before the Lord. And again, the, the, why this is so, so funny that Saul would respond this way is that what he's saying to Samuel is, is the only way that we can have this, this large nationwide celebration and party is if you come back with me and make the sacrifice. Because Saul already has gotten in trouble for trying to make the sacrifice as the king. He can't do it. He needs the prophet. He needs the priest to come and to make the sacrifice to actually have this giant celebration. And Saul here is saying, you're right, you're right, Samuel. I, I, I did, I disobeyed the commandment. Now, now come with me so that we can have this big party. Come with me so that we can have this celebration. Come with me so that we can talk about how great I am. Pardon my sins and return with me so that I can bow before the Lord. And Samuel knows exactly what Saul means. And Samuel says, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seizes the skirt of his robe and it tears. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not man that he should have regret. Then he said, Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And verse 31 says, so Samuel turns back after Saul and Saul bows before the Lord. Verse 32, Samuel says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag comes to him cheerfully. Agag says, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel does go back, but only only to complete the story, only to have this gruesome finale with King Agag. Again, a made-for-Hollywood moment there where Samuel does the job that Saul was supposed to do at the very beginning and finishes it there with King Agag. But in the midst of all of that, and this is where we close today, in the midst of all of that, he says this line in verse 28. Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Now, David has already been anointed as the next king of Israel. It's been a secret thing. Samuel's already done that. And that's, that's what Samuel means here when he says, there's a neighbor of yours. It's David. He's going to be the next king. He's better than you. You have, as I said earlier today, Saul has an arrogant heart. A selfish heart. David has a heart after God. Perfect by any stretch. But David knows how to repent. Psalm 51, we saw it earlier today, is David's response when he's caught in sin. So different. So different than Saul's response. But this verse, This kingdom has been given to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That is more than just a picture of David. More than just a picture of David. There is a true neighbor who is better than Saul. There is a true neighbor for us who is better than us. There is one who is a holy and righteous judge who one day is coming to judge all of the earth and he will do it with equity. There's one who is to come that rescues despised and worthless sinners who were destined for destruction. There's a neighbor who is to come who obeys the voice of the Lord. Obeys it all the way to the point where at the very end of his life, just towards the end of his life, says, if there's any way for me not to do this, take this cup from me. 
but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he made himself nothing. There's a neighbor who's better than us, who is actually the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords. There's a neighbor who is better than us, who was despised and rejected on his own. We esteemed him not, it says in Isaiah. But instead, he bore our griefs and he took on our iniquity. This story, this picture that we see here in 1 Samuel 15, it's not just of David who is to come. It's of Jesus. He's the king of kings. He's the rescuer. He's the better neighbor. He's our hope. And it's all through the Old Testament that these pictures are painted. Jesus is the one who was to come for Saul and Samuel and who did come for you and I. He's our hope. He's the one we look to today. He's the one that works in us and helps us to obey the commands that have been given from Scripture. He's the one that took the punishment when we could not obey, when we could not keep them. He's the one. He's the rescuer. We're going to sing this morning about Jesus. He's the one. Will you stand with me today? Sing with us. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your glory of your name be the passion of the church let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives we believe your from heaven hope and mercy at the cross you are everything you're the promise Jesus you are all to us let the glory of your name be the passion of the church let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives we believe you're all to us you're
is over, we will see you face to face, and forever we will worship Jesus who are all to us, Jesus who are all to Jesus, you are to us. God, we are grateful this morning that you have made a way for us through Christ. God, you have, have rescued us through Jesus because we could not obey. We could not obey in what you have called us to do. We could not follow the instructions perfectly. And so you sent Jesus, the perfect king of kings, to be our rescuer, to be the neighbor who's better than us, who made a way for us to be made right with you. Help us to rejoice in him this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.